And we're going to um, we're going to look this week at this subject of feasting. Um, I'm going to try and understand what it means to be a people who feast. If you were here last week, um, last week we were thinking about fasting, and we had two big points last week. And the two big points were that fasting cannot do what Jesus can do. That is, fasting cannot save you, and it cannot make your prayers more acceptable to God. But fasting flows out of what Jesus has done. Now, in many ways, today's sermon could have exactly the same sermon points. Feasting cannot do what Jesus can do. But feasting flows out of what Jesus has done. And we're going to try and understand this afternoon why feasting is actually a completely appropriate thing for Christians to enjoy. In fact, let me be more specific. Let me tell you what I've been praying. I've been praying that as a result of this sermon... God would change the way you eat your Christmas lunch. That because of what we look at this afternoon, that we would eat Christmas lunch differently. That'd be cool. (laughs) Obviously, yep, that'd be great. I'm going to take that as overwhelming excitement about that. And we're going to think about how it is that feasting can form a part of our, our Christian life. And we're going to look at two parables of Jesus that both have the same phrase in them, but they're translated slightly differently, so you might miss it. I'd love you to turn to Luke chapter 12, page 1,044. Page 1,044, Luke chapter 12. And here's the first feast we're going to explore. In verse 19, we'll come to the whole story in a second, But in verse 19, a man says, you have plenty to himself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years, take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Eat, drink, and be merry. Now flip over just a couple of pages to Luke 15. And I want you to look at verse 23. Here is another feast. Verse 23, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. Now that word celebrate is the same word as in Luke 12 for be merry. So it's chapter 12, let us eat, drink and be merry. And then in chapter 15, let us eat and be merry. And yet one of those feasts is profoundly wrong, and one of them is profoundly beautiful. And if we can work out the difference between those two feasts, we'll discover the secret to feasting joyfully in a way which pleases God. Now, I think this is important for us because when we talk about fasting last week and and kind of denying ourselves good things, we can somehow feel that that is inherently more holy, that that's better. To be hungry and poor feels more right than to be full and indulgent. That feels a little bit self-obsessed. So we will tend to feel guilty when we're at this end. When we're enjoying a nice meal, we may feel guilty about it. But actually, there is a way to enjoy feasts that is deeply honouring to God. 
That's what we're going for today. Okay, let's get into this. Let's start with Luke 12. And we're going to start off with a feast um, that I'm going to suggest to you is the wrong sort of feasting. Let me read the story first of all, and then we'll just notice some things about the feast. So someone in the crowd, this is verse 13 of Luke 12, someone in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. So here is a man who enjoys a great feast. Eat, drink and be merry. And I want you to notice four things about this feast. Firstly, the feast is the goal. That's what he's aiming for. What he most wants in life is to get to a position where he can say, I've made it. Now I can just enjoy life. Now I can just eat, drink and be merry. That's the goal of his life. That's what everything is heading towards. That is what he's aiming for. That's his ambition. And so he works hard and he gets this harvest and he's successful and he does well and then he can achieve his goal. Okay, let me ask you this question. Do you think that that sounds familiar in our culture? That this feast is the goal that so many people are living for. That moment in life when I can eat, drink and be merry. That moment in life when I can arrive. The feast is the goal. It's all about that. It's what the man is striving for. That's the first thing. I want you to notice the second thing. This feast is entitled. He feels entitled to this feast. So look what he says again. Look how he talks about himself. Uh, Verse 8 At verse 17, he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and there I'll store my surplus and I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain. This is this feast where the man, if you went to see him and you said to him, why are you doing, why are you living this way? He would say, because I've worked hard all my life and I deserve this. I deserve this bit of peace. I deserve to be able to enjoy all the things that I've accumulated over the years. Now again, does that sound familiar to you? 
sound familiar? That we live in a culture that says you work hard and then you deserve to be able to chill out at the end of your life and rest. You're entitled to it. Our culture is quite an entitlement culture. We love to claim our rights. We love to say, no, I deserve this. Why shouldn't I have this? And that can be quite a reaction to the guilt thing, right? When we begin to feel guilty, because perhaps we've got more than others and we have this twang of conscience, we say, yeah, but I've worked hard for this. We feel entitled to it. And often the message of our politicians is, you're entitled, if you work hard, you're entitled to an easy life, a comfortable life. It's what you should be, it's your goal, and it's what you're entitled to. I don't know if you listened to the leaders' debate on Friday night. How many people listened to the leaders' debate? Well done. (laughs) What a politically switched on. It was very funny. Um, I was listening to it, and Linda came in at one point. Linda's my wife. Linda came in. Just as Boris Johnson said, I've always campaigned against shorter sentences. And Linda said, "Um, well, that's ridiculous. What's wrong with short sentences? Is this some kind of snobby, arrogant thing about wanting to speak in long sentences? Why why is he against short sentences? (laughs) I was like, okay, don't vote on the basis of that. That's That's a bad reason to vote. In fairness, in context, it was... Anyway. (laughs) But we have this culture that says, no, you're entitled to this. This is what you should have. This is yours. Enjoy it. I want you to notice, thirdly, though, that this feast is blinkered. This feast refuses to look out of the window. You see, here is a man who has been successful and has accumulated a huge amount of stuff. And his response is, I'll build a bigger barn to store it. Rather than look out the window and say, who needs this? Who could I serve? Who could I give to? Instead, he says, how can I keep it? And here is a feast that is blinkered, a feast that is shuts the windows and pulls up the drawbridge. Do I think one of the tragedies at Christmas is that Christmas can be a time when we like to ignore what's going on outside us. We don't like to think about that. We like to pull up the drawbridge and just make sure we have a happy time. Make sure that we have a nice feast. Make sure that our Christmas is special and beautiful and lovely. I remember, this will age me, I remember when... um, Live Aid, Do They Know It's Christmas, came out when it wasn't like an old hit. It was brand new. I remember when it first came out. I remember as a kid listening to one of the lines that says, there's a world outside your window and it's a world of dread and fear. And I remember listening to that as a kid and thinking, I don't want to think about that at Christmas. That doesn't feel like a nice Christmas thought. I I don't want that. I can't cope with that. No, I just, I put up the drawbridge. This man is not looking out of his window. He's not looking to others. He's looking to himself. He's made it all about himself. Here is a feast that is blinkered to the outside. And fourthly, and perhaps most sadly of all, this kind of feast is ultimately pessimistic. Ultimately pessimistic. 
because it essentially says the best that I can hope for in this world is this feast. The best I can hope for is to get to a point where I can eat, drink and be merry and be content for a little while until death comes. Because this sort of feast cannot stop what is all around us in our world. This sort of feast is ignoring the reality of death and it's sort of saying, well, this is it. This is the best I've got. And for many people, sitting down for Christmas lunch actually is a profoundly pessimistic experience because it's the world says, well, this is it. This is the climax. This is everything. This is the best it's going to be. That is why there's such an obsession with having the perfect Christmas. This is why people kill themselves trying to get things ready, trying to make sure everything's in its right place, trying to make sure the roast potatoes are fluffed properly and your stuffing's got the right amount of cranberries in it. And we go to all this effort and it's all because it's got to be perfect because this is the best we've got. And if I'm not happy on Christmas Day, and if I'm not happy with Christmas lunch, what hope is there? So I plough everything into making this meal and this moment the best it can be. And it may be Christmas or it may be whatever it is. But we have these moments when we say they've got to be perfect. And then the family falls out with one another. Or one of the potatoes is burnt or... Someone doesn't like Brussels sprouts or someone mentions politics and the whole thing falls apart. And then someone runs off crying because they said it was supposed to be a perfect day. We've all been there, haven't we? (laughs) I have. I remember the year when my brother refused to stand for the national anthem at the Queen's speech. That was that. That was that day gone. (laughs) I remember the year when my mum said to my brother, sorry, sorry, I hope they never listen to this. She gave him a present. She said, look, it doesn't matter if you don't like it. We can take it back. This was when he was about 15. He opened the present. He went, I don't like it. And she went mad. How dare you? He said, but you said it didn't matter. It does matter. And this is how Christmas goes, right? And it's always a disappointment. Sometimes you might get a good one. Because sometimes you get a good one. One year my little brother handcuffed my uncle to the bed and then snapped the key. (laughs) We've had some terrible Christmases. But that's the point, right? Because it's that. It's supposed to be perfect. It's supposed to be magnificent. But it's not. And the problem is, even if you have an amazing one, you wake up on Boxing Day morning and you think it's gone. And the reality is, I'm about to experience my 43rd Christmas. I've probably got less Christmases left now than I've had. Do you not see that Christmas becomes this thing where you tick it off and every one you say, that's one less. That's one less I've got. And our world obsesses about this moment, about this feast. They say, this is the goal, this is what we're aiming for, this is what you're entitled to, just forget about other people for a minute, pull up the drawbridge, have a happy time, this is as good as it gets, and you get there and it just profoundly disappoints you. 
Let me show you another feast. Come with me to Luke 15. In Luke 15, Jesus tells another story. And I want to read you um, the start of this story. Jesus, this is Luke 15, verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Right, here is a son who is pursuing a feast. Right, he's pursuing everything that the world says is worth having. He's got money in his pocket. He's off to feast. Verse 14, after he spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Here's another feast. And here is a younger son who thinks that he can pursue a feast in a distant country. So he takes the money from his father without a thought for his father, basically says, Father, I wish you were dead. Off he goes to this distant land to have his party and to find his feast. And what he finds is not a feast but a famine. What he finds is a pigsty. And so he's eating in the pigsty and he suddenly realises that he's got it all wrong. The feast isn't over there. The feast is here. And so far, the, father, the son sets off to come back and now instead of pursuing the feast, he pursues the father. And here is the first thing I want us to see about this feast. You don't make the feast the goal. You make the father the goal. You make relationship with God the goal. You make knowing him the place where joy is found. This is not a feast for the sake of feast. This is a feast for the sake of the Father. Here's where joy is found. And so here is the son who's on his way home to the Father. And so if you want to enjoy a true feast this Christmas, you need to make sure that the feast isn't your goal. You need to make sure that knowing the Father, knowing God through Jesus, knowing him, make that your goal. On Christmas Day, as you sit down to eat, you say, this isn't it. It is you, Father. You're the one I long for. Because it's in knowing him 
that the feast is truly found. So the feast isn't the goal, the Father is the goal. And it isn't difficult to come see this son coming back. He's very different to the man we saw in Luke 12, right? Because the man in Luke 12 was, oh, I've built, oh, I've got too much stuff. What should I do? I'll pull down my barns. I'll build big ones and I'll eat and drink and be merry and so entitled and full, so full of himself. Here is the son. Can you see him trudging back from the distant country, trudging back with his head down? I'm no longer worthy even, even to be called one of your servants. I'm no longer worthy. I deserve nothing. Perhaps I could have some of the spare food after the servants have eaten. That's what he's hoping for. You see it? Some of the servants may be able to not finish all their meals. I'll scrape what's off their plates and I'll eat that. I don't even deserve that. And he's coming this way and the father's coming this way and the father every day has been longing for his son and the father every day has been scouring the horizon to see his son and as the son walks towards him, the father comes running down the road. Running down the road not to punish the son, not to accuse the son, not to send the son away but to embrace him, to throw his arms around him. And you have the filthy pig's thinking, undeserving son who deserves nothing and then you have the beautiful father who comes running and he throws his arms around him. And it is funny because the son is trying to get his little speech out. Father, this is verse 21, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy. He's got his little speech he's trying to get out but all the time the father's got his arms around him. Hang on, I've got a speech for you. Shut up! Not interested in your speech. I'm not interested in how undeserving you are. Your home, my precious child, your home, your home. This is where you deserve long. This is where you should be. The son is immediately embraced. The ring on his finger, the robes, the sandals on his feet. He immediately is given the status of son again. He doesn't have to prove himself. He doesn't have to clean himself up. He doesn't have to earn his way back. He doesn't have to work for 10 years to make up for the 10 years he's been over there. He just is welcomed home. And the first thing he experiences is the feast. Think of how that would taste. He is starving hungry. All he's been eating is pig food. And suddenly he's given the richest and the most beautiful of banquets. He doesn't deserve it. That's what makes the feast taste so sweet. And what we discover in the message of Christmas is that people who don't deserve it are welcomed into God's feast. You see, I have run away from God. I've sought a feast elsewhere. I've tried to find a feast that I'm entitled to, a feast where I pull up the barricades, a feast where I think I deserve it, a feast where I think I can get what I want, my satisfaction. I'm far away, and at some point I discover it doesn't satisfy, and I'm broken, and I'm a mess, and I know I'm undeserving, and here is God who sends his son into the world, and the son comes running this way, and I'm trudging back this way. I'm not even worthy, not even worthy. Jesus throws his arms wide open as he dies on the cross. He says, I'll pay it all. I'll take your filth. I'll take your uncleanness. I'll pay it 
all. And then those arms that were nailed to a cross then embrace us and say, welcome, welcome home to the feast. This is the feast that tastes sweeter than any feast you will ever taste in your life when you know that you're welcomed home by the Father. And don't you dare think that when God welcomes you in, he sort of grudgingly says, oh, fine. Come in, you can have a cream cracker and a Rivita, because no one likes them. You have them. He doesn't say, well, you know, have some scraps. He says, I've got everything. The best, the best I've got, I've got for you. This is the feast that is worth tasting. And I'm going to suggest, when you sit down to your Christmas dinner, you sit down and you say, this is nice. But it's not as good as the feast that God has won for me. And that you take that feast and you eat it and you enjoy it, but you say, it's just a small taste of the beauty of what God has done for me. It's like a little picture that God gives. And so God gives his people feast. You know, one of the interesting things in the Bible is that God in the Old Testament keeps telling his people to have festivals and feasts. The book of Leviticus, if you don't know anything about Leviticus, don't worry about it. But the book of Leviticus, most people would say it's all about sacrifices. That's because no one's ever made it to the end of Leviticus. Because you read all the sacrifices, you go, oh, sacrifice after sacrifice, I know where this is going, let's go on to numbers. If you keep reading the book of Leviticus, you discover sacrifice, 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 priest, 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 feast, 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 feast. And the book of Leviticus ends with these, this whole string of festivals that God says, here is a string of festivals for you to get a little taste of what it means to be my people. Being a one of God's people doesn't mean you sit around feeling miserable and it's also sad and rubbish and I have to fast and I have to go without stuff and there's all the funs over there. No, God says there's a feast to enjoy. And therefore, when we sit down for Christmas, we say, this is like a little taste. You don't sit there feeling guilty and saying, oh, I'm so undeserving. I should tell you what, I'll just eat the scraps when everyone else is finished. You eat it and you say, this is a little taste of what God has done for me and has won for me. (laughs) And every mouthful you eat, you say, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve any of this. But Jesus died so I could eat this. But then thirdly, <laughs> thirdly, you, you have no idea where my points are going. <laughs> so I can say thirdly, there were four points in the first thing, about the first man, there's four. If you're taking notes, you might have noticed. There's no PowerPoint today, so who knows where we are. But the fourth, the third thing, <laughs> do you remember the first feast was blinkered, Right? This is a feast that is profoundly outside looking. This is a feast that looks around. This is a feast that is generous to others. This is a feast that looks to share. So even in Luke 15, the father goes out to the other son who's hanging around outside. But this is not a feast where we pull up the blinds and say, well, this is all about me. This is a feast where you share it. You long to give away. You long to be generous. 
It's interesting, between these two stories, you get the parable that Joe read at the start of the service. In Luke 14, the parable of the great banquet. Just invite everybody in. This is the sort of feasting that the gospel produces. Not a feasting that's just about me and my little castle, but a feasting that loves to say to others, come join, come join. Come and share. So let me ask you, as you sit down for your Christmas lunch, how can you think about giving, being generous? Now I realise that for many of you, you're not in charge of who comes to Christmas lunch. And for you to, (laughs) at about noon on Christmas Day, say, by the way, I've invited 20 people who uh, had nowhere else to go, so they're all coming. I appreciate that that's difficult for some of us to do. But I want to encourage us as a church to think about how we feast in a way which welcomes people rather than excludes. To think of how we feast. And this may be true of when we spend time together, when we think of having, you know, perhaps we're having a party at our place and we're inviting people around to come and sit in our one little room and to kind of invite everyone to come and squeeze in. And you say, who could you invite? Who do you invite? You see, the gospel says you invite Everyone. In fact, no, the gospel says you invite primarily those who can't invite you back. That doesn't mean that we can't enjoy good times with our friends, but it means you mustn't enjoy good times with your friends at the exclusion of others. That there mustn't be this sense of pull up the blinds, just forget everybody else. What would it look like? What would it look like for you to sit down on Christmas lunch and be looking at the people around the table and saying, how can I serve these people that God has put me in this room with today? We used to have such fights over roast potatoes. Makes me sad looking back now. I have two brothers. And you'd have one roast potato left. It's tough, right? Your mum would say, let's cut it into three. But, ah, it's not right. What if we have a sense that says, no, I want to give. I want to be the one who offers to serve. I want to be the one who gets up to wash up. I want to be the one who loves to serve. Who loves to display the gospel in the way that I do Christmas lunch, in the way that I feast. This feast looks outside. And finally, and perhaps the bit that I'm most excited about, the feast is profoundly optimistic, hopeful, joyful. You see, if the feast of Luke 12 is the best that this world has to offer, then the feast, the little feasts that we enjoy now are only a foretaste of the feast that's to come. I may have, what, 30 Christmases left, something like that? 40? Some of you feel like I'm being harsh on myself. You have no idea how I eat. (laughs) I may have, you know, I've got a limited number of Christmases left. But that's okay. Because they aren't ultimate. There's a feast that each of those is pointing to, which is better by far. And therefore, we don't have to pretend that this is the best the world can offer. Instead, we feast, and this is, going to sound weird 
but we feast as an act of war. There we go, just chuck that in at the end of the sermon, just to get you all woken up. In other words, you look around at this world, and you see that there's pain, and you see there's suffering, and you see there's famine, and you see that there's agony and death, and you see in my own life that there's stuff that's going wrong, and there's things that are bad. And rather than at Christmas, pretend that everything's okay and trying to have this perfect day, instead you say, in the face of all of that stuff, I'll celebrate. I will celebrate because Jesus is king. And you sit down to eat your Christmas lunch in defiance of all that is wrong with our world. You see, yes, there are people who are homeless. Yes, there are people who are starving. You don't have to ignore that on Christmas Day. You don't have to shut that out in order to be able to enjoy your meal. Instead, you can come to your Christmas lunch and you can say, Father, this world sucks. How long until you put things right? How long until this Little feast becomes the great feast of joy that you promised for all nations. And therefore we feast with great hope. And I think that's how Christians feast. We don't make the feast the goal, we make Jesus, the Father, the relationship with God the goal. We come to a feast knowing we don't deserve it. We come to a feast looking at those around us who are in need and we come hopeful for all that God will do in this world. And if you have a rubbish Christmas lunch, that's okay. just makes you realise that this isn't everything. And there's much, much better to come. Now, of course, we can be indulgent And we can step over the line and we can become Luke 12 feasters rather than Luke 15 feasters. We can feed ourselves and we can become obsessed and we can make it all about us. That will lead to disappointment and distress. But Luke 15 holds out a better hope. And I want to finish by reading you some words from Isaiah 25. I want you to listen... to what God has promised. Don't worry about turning to it particularly. Just maybe even um, close your eyes if you want. Listen to what God has promised. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples. The sheet that covers up all nations, he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. And we feast now because there is a feast to come. And the little feasts we enjoy now are just a foretaste of the greater feast that's to come. So 
So my advice to you this Christmas, my advice to you as you spend time with others is eat, drink and be merry. Of course, if you do that in Luke 12 way, it becomes eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. If you feast in the Luke 15 way, you say eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we live. For tomorrow we celebrate because Jesus welcomes us to his feast. And this is a feast where there'll be no more death and crying. And that means that as we feast in this world as an act of war, in defiance, sometimes that means feasting with tears running down our faces. I will celebrate. In the midst of the pain, I will celebrate because there's a feast to come. So let's learn to feast. Yes, let's learn to fast and let's learn to feast. Because the fasting reminds us how much we long for Jesus and the feasting reminds us of what's to come. Let's bow our heads and let's pray, then we're going to sing. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the goal is that we should know you and that we should be welcomed by you and that we should enjoy your feast where there'll be no more death and there will be perfect satisfaction. Father, we pray, please, that you'd help us to see that to pursue the feasts of this world cannot satisfy us. Lord, help us to pursue the feast, this feast, the feast that you've promised. And we pray that we would feast defiantly, that we would feast as an act of war, that we would feast to declare that our confidence is in Jesus and all that he's done for us, and that one day this world will be put right. Lord, please teach us to feast this way, we pray. Amen.